Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Robert Half. Robert Half research indicates nine out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you are feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Their specialized recruiting professionals engage with their proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, they know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Homes.com. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know all in one place. As they say at homes.com, we've done your homework. Let's play a piece of um, a Churchill speech. We'll worry later about whether... <laughs> how, how much... Uh, Whose tab it goes yeah, on. exactly. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. So, first of all, astonishing language. I mean, which he, which he crafted meticulously. Mm. There wasn't a, a comma or even a breath that I don't think was choreographed in advance. He was a performer as a speaker. Uh, now, Churchill coined uh, a number of things that Churchill said throughout history have become ingrained in our, in our language. Um, Never, 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 never give, give in, in, is it? Or give, give up, give in. in. Yeah. Um, do I now, having said those words on this program, need to send a check to somebody? How does it work? Yes, I think you should send it to me, and I'll <laughs> forward it. Thank you. From WNYC and APM, American Public Media, this is Freakonomics Radio, the podcast that explores the hidden side of everything. Here's your host, Stephen Dubner. Um, so, Barry Singer, welcome. Thank you. Uh, I know you. In fact, we're old friends. I think it's safe to say we're friends. Yeah. For sure. 
Barry Singer is a writer, the author of several books about music and the theater. And for the past 30 years, he has also run a shop in New York City called Chartwell Booksellers. It's a regular bookshop, but it specializes in Churchilliana, that is, books, manuscripts, and artifacts that relate to the long and storied life of Sir Winston Spencer Churchill. Chartwell, in fact, is the name of Churchill's home in Kent in southeast England. Despite knowing a great deal about Churchill and despite having written several books, it wasn't until recently that Barry Singer himself wrote a book about Churchill. It's called Churchill's Style, The Art of Being Winston Churchill. And in the course of writing the book, something strange happened, something having to do with Churchill's estate and money and Barry Singer. But before we get to that, let's hear a bit more about Churchill himself and his well-appointed life. I love the fact that away from his life, he nurtured himself, it seemed to me, in a very holistic and fascinating way so that he had the strength to weather all the defeat that was actually part of his career. Churchill lost, I think, at least five elections, at least five elections in the course of his career. He was constantly swatted down. He was constantly dismissed, including at the end of World War II. Before the war ended, he was voted out of office as prime minister. And I believe that the life that he created for himself away from politics was the source of his strength. And that included everything from how he dressed. He, 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 he liked comfortable clothing. Those jumpsuits he designed. And he designed a jumpsuit <laughs> for himself that he could zip down to the floor so he could step in and step out of it. Mm-hmm. Pretty amazing. Um, had it made up in all these different fabrics. So he had a dress one and he had one for painting and he had, uh, he had one that he wore with medals. Everything he wore was bespoke. Obviously, he was into very fine fabrics and things like that. But at the same time, he, he built Chartwell. He kind of renovated it with his own hands, obviously with the help of professionals. But he was in there designing and um, creating the, recreating the house himself. So he was, he was very much a hands-on, fix-it sort of personality. Let me lead you on a tangent just for a minute because it gets to where – where I want to go with you eventually, let's say somebody listening to this knows nothing about Winston Churchill. They know that he existed. He was prime minister of Britain during the war and he did some other stuff, okay? One would assume that he was a fabulously wealthy human being. Um, one would have assumed, however, wrongly. So talk about, you know, there's a lot in your book about money, what it meant to him, how he used it, how he was in some ways very savvy. But also he lived like a king, not on a king's salary. So talk about that for a minute. Uh, you have to remember that his 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 uh, his father was the son of the Duke of Marlborough, but he was not the inheriting son, so he came away from that with nothing. Um, he was also kind of frivolous with money himself, so Churchill inherited only, his, for the most part, his father's debts. But he wrote, he figured out very early on that the only thing that he could do to make money quickly was to write. He was a very good writer. Had Winston Churchill not gotten into politics, had he not finally won an election and eventually become PM and all these other things, um, any idea what kind of career he would have had as a literary figure alone? He won the Nobel Prize for Literature. No, I'm just saying like – I think he was you, a good enough writer that he would have become – he would have remained a writer, I think. But it's also important to point out that he joined the army to get into parliament. Mm-hmm. He knew that he wanted to become a, a famous war hero, war correspondent – so that he could run for parliament. He always wanted politics. He wanted to do what his father had done and best him. And you, know, uh, and you have to remember also that until the 1920s, parliament, nobody was paid a salary who, who served in parliament. 
So there was no money in it. Mostly you had to go in there with your own money. Okay. So here's a young man who had his sights set on politics, saw the military and writing about being in the military as an avenue toward that goal. Everything works out. He gets that goal. He becomes a politician. The the story um, goes on. Um, had he been only a writer, he probably would have been, as you say, a very successful writer and probably would have made plenty of money to sustain what he wanted to accomplish. Um, talk for just one more minute then about uh, him uh, for the rest of his life and money and where the money came from to support himself during and after politics. Um, first of all, the money came from the writing, but he then spent it. He spent it liberally. He spent it on uh, Paul Roger champagne, which he bought in staggering quantities and vintages that he preferred. He bought out as he would buy everything that he could find. And he bought cigars. I have bills. The, the Churchill archives have preserved. He saved everything. So the Churchill archives in Cambridge have everything, all of the bills. So you can see what he was buying from, the, from, from nine different cigar emporiums all across London. And it's, it's, it's an unbelievable thousands of cigars. Um, but when he got into trouble, he took investment advice from a number of important people, and he was close to the Rothschild family. His father had been close to the Rothschild family. Uh, but some of these people bailed Churchill out when he got into deep. Churchill himself died in 1965, yes? Correct. He was an old man. He, had, he lived in 90. 90. Did he die a rich man? Did he leave a whole lot of money to his heirs? He did not. Um, one of the reasons that Churchill was able to stay on at Chartwell which he would have sold, I think, after the war because it was just too expensive to maintain, is that, again, friends of his stepped up and said, we will buy Chartwell from you. We will raise a subscription to buy it from you, and you will be able to live there at a very nominal rent for the rest of your life. And when it's done, it, you'll, it'll become a National Trust property and a museum. And that's exactly what happened. And that's why the building is preserved today and is very much as it was when he left it because he lived there until the day he died. And then Clementine left there, lived there, and then it was turned over to the to the National Trust. So he didn't have much to leave to his grandchildren except the copyrights to his works. Coming up on Freakonomics Radio, what is the going rate for a word once written or spoken aloud by Winston Churchill? I used 3,872 words of Winston Churchill's in the book. Mm -hmm. And that cost me 950 pounds, mm -hmm. which is roughly 40 cents a word. Hello, British copyright law. And it turns out Barry Singer is not the only one who doesn't like it. We were having a, a coffee a few years ago with Sergey Brin and Larry Page, and they, they said to us that they've been looking at the intellectual property regime in the UK, and they thought that actually they couldn't have started Google in the UK. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Southern Company. As a national leader in carbon-free nuclear energy, Southern Company has a vision of a resilient energy future, and every day they're putting it in motion. That means balancing the responsibility and reliability of their existing infrastructure while also investing in carbon-free nuclear energy along with wind and solar power as an essential component of preserving our environment. With energy demand on the rise, their balanced approach to a net-zero future centers around creating jobs, 
helping communities thrive and meeting demand for carbon-free energy in a way that's affordable, reliable, and safe for all. Because a stronger and more equitable tomorrow is only possible through investments in our communities today. Learn more at southerncompany.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Cars.com. Have you heard about the Your Garage feature on Cars.com? Here's how it works. You add your car to your garage to track its market value and cash in when the time is right to sell. Track both your car's historical and projected value. When it's time to sell, easily secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on Cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on Cars.com. From WNYC and APM American Public Media, this is Freakonomics Radio. Here's your host, Stephen Dubner. So Barry Singer, proprietor of a New York bookshop that specializes in the works of Winston Churchill, is writing a book about Churchill to be called Churchill Style, he gets in touch with the literary agency, Curtis Brown, which oversees the Churchill estate. I contacted them to let them know that I was doing this book um, and was surprised to learn, they told me, that any word of Churchill's, either written or uttered in public, um, was copyrighted by the Churchill estate and that I would have to pay a royalty to quote from Churchill. Now, it should be said that Singer, as a dealer in old Churchill books and artifacts, is quite friendly with the estate, Churchill's children and grandchildren. He's done business with them. They've visited his shop in New York. He's visited them in their homes in England. So he hadn't been expecting to pay merely to quote Churchill in his book. I was shocked. What I assumed was that, as we've all written Quoting throughout our writing career, you you abstract a certain amount of words, and you quote. You don't you don't necessarily quote um, an entire book, but you can quote selected passages without. Right, there are laws fair use. Paying rights, fair right, use. Right, right. So tell me what you began to learn about the United Kingdom's uh, fair use or some, somewhat fair use. Well, there law. is no fair li- okay. fair use in the United <laughs> Kingdom. <laughs> right. It's every man for himself Lack in the United of, yeah, Kingdom. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the way it was explained to me was the Bill of Rights, that the that free speech in the United States, because it, it is in the Bill of Rights, you actually are allowed to quote more liberally than you are in the, in the United Kingdom, which has no Bill of Rights. And the Magna Carta did not gra- guarantee that anybody could quote whatever they wanted to um, or that anyone – that there was – it, I don't quite get it. I still don't think that and, – and I actually had an attorney here who said to me, you know, I think that you could push this if you wanted to and I don't think they have a leg to stand push on Push this legally. meaning write whatever you want, include and let, yes. the Churchill quotes. And let them come after you and I think you would win the case in court. However, 
I have, as I say, warm relations with the Churchill family and have no interest whatsoever in crossing them or, or doing anything that they don't want me to do. And I did go to members of the Churchill family and say to them, is this real? And Give me a specific. You're saying like, for instance, a speech, let's mm-hmm. say, right, that Churchill has made. And you're, you're saying you would like to quote whatever, 20 words, 50 words, 80 words from the speech. The agent has told you, yes, you may license his words via me for on behalf of the estate, and it will cost you what, X he cents a word? How does 500 pounds per thousand words quoted. Ooh. So you, as a writer of a book about Churchill, if you want to include quotations from Churchill, even if those were made while, let's say, he was prime minister before parliament, you would have to pay the Churchill estate nearly a buck a word. That's right. As long as it was uh, delivered, 70 years was the statute of limitations. And 70 years did not apply if it was the first time any of this was being quoted. Uh Uh-huh. Interesting wrinkle. Which was an interesting wrinkle. That surprised me. Yeah. So when you learned that every time you would quote Churchill himself, whether from public or private writing or speech, in the book that you're writing about Churchill, um, how did that affect your writing of that Churchill book then? I cut every quote to the bone. <laughs> I was shaving quotes. I was cutting participles. You didn't have to pay for ellipses. I, I was yeah, – the ellipses were flying. <laughs> I cut. I was cutting like crazy. I'll tell you also that every member of the Churchill family it applied to as well. So if I, I had quotes of Clementine, and the rate for Clementine was higher than the rate for Winston. Wow. Um, so and I'm I, guessing Clementine went out the window in your book. Then she the was most. gone. I just I, and I, I wrote to Curtis Brown and I said, if you do this, Clementine will be eliminated from the book as a voice. I'll just paraphrase her. And they said to me, be careful about par- paraphrasing. But I did. Um, God knows. I, I I hope that they still <laughs> like me over there. But I um, this is the fact. This is what happened. Okay. I want to know then uh, if you're willing to say how much you had to pay. So the way book writing works, for those who don't know, is typically an author will get an advance, which is an advance against royalties. So if your book sells a lot, your publisher will get the money back that they paid you in the advance, and then you'll start sharing profits. But the, the author gets an advance that you use to fund yourself to do the research and write the book. Could, do you want to say either how, either or both how much you had to pay to the estate, uh, the Churchill estate, and or what share of your advance it, it constituted? Well, um, I do know because of the contract we ultimately signed that I used 3,872 words of Winston Churchill's in the book. Mm-hmm. And that cost me 950 pounds, mm-hmm. which is roughly 40 cents a word. So they 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 did oh, bring they gave it, you a nice they break. did bring it down yeah. somewhere. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that my entire advance went to to photo and uh, word rights in the end. Do you regret, therefore, in any direction, having written the book? No, no. I've never, um, unlike Churchill, I have a day job because I've never written entirely for money. I really wanted to write this book, and I'm really glad to see it. And uh, the rest is the future. Maybe it will generate some money, but all the advance money went into the book. For the record, we did contact the Churchill estate and its literary agent. Neither of them wanted to speak for this program. Now, if you're a writer like Barry Singer, who's been trained in American journalism, the idea of paying to quote the words of a public official may seem strange. But just because you're not accustomed to something doesn't necessarily make it wrong. Rules differ. Laws differ. Estates differ. 
James Joyce's grandson, Stephen James Joyce, is so protective of his grandfather's words that he is the bane of many a Joyce scholar. The estate of Martin Luther King Jr. charged about $800,000 for the use of his likeness and words in the new King Memorial in Washington, D.C. Now, Every case is different. A public memorial is not the same as a book, which is not the same as a TV commercial. And the UK is not the same as the US. As most scholars will tell you, UK laws are much more protective and, as a result, much more convoluted on many levels. So much so, in fact, that the government has gotten involved. So, Rohan, this um, conversation began when I was visiting you in London. I told you about this friend of mine. I don't know if you remember this conversation at all about Churchill, my friend writing the, the Churchill, Churchill book. Yeah, absolutely. Remember it well. Rohan Silva is a senior policy advisor to British Prime Minister David Cameron. He covers a lot of ground, including reform of Britain's archaic copyright system. Well, I think I think the big point to make is that the British system doesn't have a uh, a very specific characteristic that the American system does. You over there have fair use exemptions uh, in intellectual property. We we just don't have those in the UK. So some of the kind of examples of absurdities might include uh, medical researchers doing data mining across large numbers of. Uh, of, of data sets and patient records and so on quickly fall foul in the UK of, uh, of copyright laws. Uh, another example is that we've had lots of cultural institutions, museums and galleries uh, coming to us saying we've got tapes, uh, uh, you know, old videotapes, um, spools of tapes rotting in our basements because we can't digitise them because in digitising you are changing the format which requires permission from the copyright holder and with a lot of these old 1920s, 1930s films and, uh, and recordings, the copyright holder can't be found. And so these tapes are left rotting for fear of, uh, of uh, litigation. So, you know, we're really seeing these absurdities abound. Now, it, it might be easy to try to minimize those absurdities or minimize the impact of those absurdities, let's say, by thinking, well, these are, um, you know, kind of arcane copyright uh, barriers that may be problematic for certain kinds of creators and, and a small group of people, perhaps. But really, you've opened it up to look at uh, a much broader issue, including innovation writ large, yes? Exactly. I mean, you know, our view is that unless we reform the intellectual property system in the UK, we're really going to be at a disadvantage in the digital age. One of the um, you know, prompts for doing this, this work on intellectual property actually came from the founders of Google. We were having a, a coffee a few years ago with um, Sergey Brin and Larry Page, and they, they said to us that their lawyers, as it happened, had been looking at the intellectual property regime in the UK, and they thought that actually they couldn't have started Google in the UK. So imagine if, if their startup in a garage had been in London rather than Palo Alto. Well, the way Google works, where they sort of Google bots and algorithms crawl, take a snapshot of the internet and then crawl all over that snapshot for, for quick search results, well, that kind of thing simply you know, wouldn't have been possible in the UK because you'd have immediately fallen foul of all the copyright uh, rules in the absence of the fair use provisions you have in the States. So a really big, if a company like Google couldn't have been started in the UK because of the intellectual property uh, rules, that's when we really realised that we, uh, this wasn't hmm. just an arcane issue. It was, it was really central. It is really central to our vision for the economy at large. 
So the Cameron administration commissioned a report to look into updating the UK's intellectual property regime. The report's author, a well-regarded scholar named Ian Hargraves, came back with three key recommendations. First, the government should create a digital copyright exchange that would make it easier for a user to find out who owns a piece of content and pay him for it. Second, the government should facilitate the use of what are called orphan works, those rotting tapes sitting in basements, for instance, by allowing a fair use exemption if the owner of such works cannot be found. And the third one, well, the third one is the biggie. It has to do with data mining. It would make it easier for researchers of various kinds to sort through massive piles of data. As Rohan Silva sees it, the liberalization of this copyright restriction will change the game. Well, let me give you an example. Um, Lots of people around the world are very excited about genomics, about uh, an era in which whole genome sequencing uh, is is, uh, very affordable. And one of the things we're looking at at the moment is how large uh, databases of anonymized whole genomes can lead to great insights for researchers because they're running queries through these big data sets. Well, there are some who believe that the uh, the the uh, economic applications of these kind of genomic databases, you know, you could be talking about a new industry worth tens of billions of pounds a year. I mean, really big new industries, companies as big as Bloomberg and Google and Facebook built in this space uh, using genetic data to uh, to create new tools and apps and services and medicines and treatments. Well, our concern is that unless the intellectual property regime allows you to do large-scale database uh, queries, uh, data mining across, across big databases, linking critically different types of data, clinical records with whole genomes and so on, that entire field of innovation will be closed off. So while some of the applications here might might sound a bit, well, you know, that's, that's a nice thing to do, but not central to the economy, things to do with, um, you know, rotting bits of tape in the basement of the, of, of, uh, <laughs> the British Library. I can, see, I can see that that might not sound central to the future of, of the economy. Um, but uh, if, if, if the intellectual property regime winds up, as we fear it um, is, unless we do something about it, winds up impeding an entire new area of innovation in the UK, like genetics, like genomics, then we've got a problem on our hands. And um, that's what we're trying to get ahead of. So what begins with a, a tiny little fight over a few pounds here and there to quote Winston Churchill may result in a, a multi-billion or trillion dollar industry and millions of lives saved. In right. words, that's the idea. <laughs> that's, exactly, that's exactly it. I called up Steve Levitt, my Freakonomics friend and co-author, to get his thoughts on copyright and fair use. Um, Levitt, long before you and I met, um, you had been writing academic papers for years, publishing them in journals. Did you ever get paid for any of those papers? I don't know that I've ever gotten paid for writing papers that appear in academic 
journals, mm-hmm. although sometimes you would get paid some nominal sum to write articles that would appear in an edited volume. So, for instance, there's a book on crime that has leading scholars write a chapter, and I probably got paid five or $10,000 to write a chapter on that book. Now, but did you ever calculate the value of writing those papers in journals for free? Yes, I did. And so my estimate is that for a young academic, every publication in a top peer-reviewed economics journal is probably worth at least $100,000. Because it's worth that much because a publication in a top journal is going to enhance your reputation, therefore your labor prospects over your lifetime that much? That's the idea? Will help you get tenure, help you move, uh, get outside job offers. But in in many ways, that's probably um, an underestimate of, of the value of these top publications. What do you think about your words? Let's pretend, uh, you know, two generations from now, you're long dead and your grandchildren uh, administer the uh, estate of Stephen Levitt, economist and uh, accidental author. And your words, whether uh, from something you wrote or delivered in a lecture, are being um, used in some fashion that we can't imagine today. Should they be worth anything? If so, how much should they be worth? Oh, I think they're worth nothing. I try to give them away whenever I can. I mean, <laughs> I, I, maybe it's just the academic in me, but the idea that you try to own and control your your words and your ideas, I, I think it's both hopeless and, and misguided. Uh, misguided why? What does it produce? I just think in the long run, even if your only goal is to be profit maximizing, the idea that other people are out there spreading your thoughts and using your words has got to be good for you in the long run of whatever you know, whatever returns you're you're trying to get. But at a deeper level, it's just, you know, I I probably won't sound like an economist, but it just seems ridiculous to try to squeeze the last penny out of every little bit of things you own. I mean, people who, you know, we do well making our books and and Yeah, so why is that different? Why why shouldn't, um, so we charge for our books or our publisher pays us and they charge for the books. What's, are, are you saying that if you want your words to be, spread as freely and cheaply as all that, that 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 shouldn't happen? Oh, I think some people care enough about having their ideas out there that they would rather give away their books and their ideas than to charge for them. I mean, we're not those people. We like to get paid for our books. I think the problem you run into with intellectual property is when people are not willing to produce the ideas in the books because they are no property rights, and so they can't get their mm-hmm. return. So mm-hmm. obviously, you and I are in favor of intellectual property rights, and we don't, you know, we don't like people getting our book for nothing or xeroxing and handing it out. Although, you know, I'm kind of amused when people send me books from India that have been, you know, xeroxed, you know, very low quality ripoffs of our book. I, I you know, it's not like someone was going to pay full price for that book anyway. But I think there's a difference between basic property rights, which make it worth your while to invest in creating a work of art or a work of nonfiction. And then the idea that you get all pissy about it when somebody, you know, on the edges tries to do a little something with what you're doing. So that's the trade-off to be concerned with. If anyone should be free to use anything that's been created by anybody, which in some ways is the baseline ethos in these early years of the digital revolution, then will the incentives to create be strong enough? 
we won't have an answer to that question for many years. There's a lot of history to work off and a lot of future to still be sorted out. In the meantime, I do know this. An American radio project like ours is not subject to British copyright law or the reach of Winston Churchill's literary agent or his estate, which means that we can play you his majestic words freely and for free, and thus we shall. Prodigious hammer strokes have been needed to bring us together today. If you will allow me to use other language, I will say that he must indeed have a a blind soul who cannot see that some great purpose and design is being worked out here below, of which we have the honor to be the faithful servants. It is not given to us to peer into the mysteries of the future. Still I avow my hope and faith, sure and inviolate, that in the days to come, the British and American people will for their own safety and for the good of all walk together in majesty, in justice, and in peace. Hey, podcast listeners. On our next episode, Steve Levitt stops by Marketplace to talk with Kai Rizdahl about a new project called Freakonomics Experiments. It's about decision-making, and anyone, and that includes you, can participate. For me, what gets me excited, and I'm sure you can sense my excitement, is the idea that we're taking economic research to a place it's never been done before, and really, in some ways, democratizing it to the extent that anyone can now be part of this process. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Freakonomics Radio is produced by WNYC, APM, American Public Media, and Dubner Productions. Our staff includes Susie Lechtenberg, Catherine Wells, David Herman, Beret Lamb, and Chris Bannon. Colin Campbell is our executive producer. If you want more Freakonomics Radio, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or go to Freakonomics.com, where you'll find lots of radio, a blog, the books, and more. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.